And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello and thanks for joining us on this Tuesday, March 7th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors Daisy Thornton and Robert O'Shaughnessy. Coming up in this hour of the Federal Drive, U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services processing delays and paperwork result in a lawsuit. Plus, the Thrift Savings Plan overseers make new progress on that website. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of the Federal Drive. But first, after 13 years in business, U.S. Cyber Command plans an expansion. In the works, a new intelligence center to collect international cyber intelligence data. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr got details on why they need that new center from Cyber Command's Colonel Candace Frost. General Martimucci, the J-2 of Cyber Command, um, understood and started to work with the Defense Intelligence Agency that there was a gap in the information shared with us from um, the wonderful intel shared from the NSA, National uh, Security Agency, but we really needed an all-source approach from the Department of Defense side. And so as each of the services have their own intelligence center, there was just a, a gaping hole, space set up its own, but cyber didn't have one. And so how this will unfold is still, it's a work in progress. The mission analysis portion is done. Um, it passed through the Defense Intelligence Agency, and now it's at um, the broader DOD and going, to, going forward to Congress. But we've really done a true understanding and mission analysis of where those gaps are in both foundational intelligence and also in science and technology. And both of those areas are, are holes that we had in our swing and we'll have to stand up an organization, a unit, some type of function that will be able to cover that. So when did this start? How long has it already been in progress? So I think the concept, the need has been there for a very long time, but the concept itself really got underway about a, about a year and a half ago. And we were able to get it passed through um, the machinations of, of understanding and, you know, really inputs from different intel centers. And then it, it passed through in February out of the DIA. Sort of in plain explanation, what happens next? It passes out of the DIA, then what happens? Then what happens? Well, like anything in our system, it's got to go through and specifically um, get congressional funding. And they have said, is this necessary? I think um, both uh, our Department of Defense leaders are grappling with what this will look like, the shape and size, the workforce itself, the funding levels, the titles and authorities. All of those things need to be road mapped out. It's just that we have validated that the need exists and it's going forward. So how do you envision it in its mature phase as, as a fully realized program? Wow, that, um, that will be left to the next generation that takes this torch forward um, because there are so many different inputs that, that will have to come forward. The size, the shape, the location, all of those things are still truly um, not defined and the people that move forward with this will be able to really shape what it looks like. 
Are there recommendations for those things at this point? Absolutely, there are recommendations. I think there are recommendations from different parts of the intelligence community, and there are recommendations from the Department of Defense as well, those operators that need this um, information and intelligence. And so each of them will kind of come together, and then at the end of the day, um, Congress is the one that provides a budget and really a framework for what it will look like and how it will service the DOD in the future. And what about the workforce? You mentioned that a little bit. Yeah, the workforce itself, I think, will have, um, because it will be a defense intelligence agency organization, primarily funded by analysts through through there, um, we'll also have a mixture of science, science and technology experts. It's got to really un, uh, underlay both the foundational layer of, you know, our entire network and where we're at, where we are at looking at the, the ecosystem. And then on the other side, where the science and technology, where are we looking next? Um, and those people that can really get into the nitty-gritty details of um, the space that we exist in. So it would be a combination of uniform and civilian employees? More than likely, yes. Mostly civilian, or what do you think? I think if you look at any of the structures that are already in existence, um, a great example is the National Ground Intelligence Center. They're primarily comprised of civilians um, with military leadership. So if it mirrors any of NASIC, NGIC, even what space has set forward, um, primarily civilians. All right, and let's kind of go through what they'll do in the center. So that is also still underway. I think the two big pillars that we will look at is the foundational intelligence layer, and they will look um, similar. I'm making lots of comparisons to what's in existence already. Um, the National Ground Intelligence Center, when they look at foundational intelligence, they can tell you everything about a T-72 tank all the way to the nuts and bolts. Um, we've got to build something like that on our networks um, external when we're looking at nation-state actors. If we look at that with equipment, we've got to understand that for different types of um, networks and the equipment that feeds into those networks. So that, that part will be in existence. And then the other side is the science and technology. If we look at an IP address, um, almost like a grid coordinate for the Army, um, and compare those two, we've got to be able to understand where they are out there um, for dangerous threat actors that are trying to um, harm our systems. So following along on that, you had mentioned there are some holes that this will fill. Can you be a little specific about what those holes you're looking to fill are? I think the, the biggest holes that we're looking to fill is, you know, as we continually move in this space, so much of it is constantly changing. And so if we can get at least a depth of understanding, yeah, we can look at um, an, Air, an Air Force platform that's been in existence for years. And you've been following um, this type of structure, their flight patterns. You know everything about this a threat actor and how they use this equipment. We don't have that necessarily in, in cyberspace. And so we'll have to do that with an all-source uh, perspective out there. And that, that will build upon itself. Um, and then someone very forward-leaning, you know, looking at the next generation and what's going forward. Th those are the two big holes that it will fill. Next generation, what are you seeing? Ah, the next, the next generation, well, you know, what, uh, what's on everyone's mind right now is artificial intelligence and machine learning. And both of those are truly areas that 
we will also have to vector through because threat actors will use that space to their advantage and, and we'll constantly look at that. Um, also in the, you know, defense is the new offense. How the defensive posture that we use in the DOD um, complements the work that Cyber Command does. U.S. Cyber Command's Colonel Candace Frost speaking with Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr. Check out Alex's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, the Thrift Savings Plan overseers make new progress on that website. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Federal employees have continued to express frustration at the Thrift Savings Plan website, the portal through which millions access their accounts. At its recent monthly meeting, though, the Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board revisited its IT modernization project, which deployed in May of last year. We get an update from the board's Director of External Affairs, Kim Weaver. Kim, good to have you back. Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me. And some of the chief functions that people were complaining about, it looks like you have made progress on those. And let's begin with just being able to specify your monthly withdrawal or your minimum required distribution. That was, I think, making people tear their hair out. Is that largely past us now? It has been totally fixed. You can set your monthly payment as low as $25 and in whatever amount you want to take. And you can change that month by month if you want. You can. And the other improvement is that you can change that installment amount with just one phone call. Previously, we we're having to call in, cancel the amount you were getting, and then call back and restart. That has been revamped. And you can now change your monthly payment with just one phone call to the thrift line. But you need a phone call. You can't do it through the website. And that's what I was just going to say. Coming in the spring, you will be able to do that online. And so you won't have to call the thrift line at all. I don't have anything more specific than spring, but it is coming. At the board meeting, Accenture, the contractor was there. I mean, did the board kind of say, hey, folks, you really got to get this turned around? They did. The board members were asking some, I would say, pointed questions to the Accenture officials who were there and expressing the fact, because, of course, our board members are hearing directly from participants as well. So they're well aware of the challenges and the frustrations that people are feeling. Not only as fiduciaries do they want to get it fixed, but as human beings, they want to make it as easy as possible. I figure if I'm getting email, the board must be getting a lot more email because I get get requests for help and I I can't help people. I don't have access to it and it's not really my authority to to do that. So that's good to hear. What are some of the other issues? I mean, people were wondering about just the phone call time. What are the trends there and whether the question could be answered when they did reach someone? So as to the second question, every call center rep, we call them PSRs. Every PSR went through refresher training. So to the question you just posed, if we answer the phone quickly, that's great. But if you get somebody who then can't help you, that's not as great. And so every PSR went through refresher training to make sure that they understood our program and understood their specialty because different call center reps focus on different issues, withdrawals, loans, whatever. And then the other thing that we did was we added in statements to TSP's My Account. So participants can log into their TSP My Account 
And in their secure mailbox, they will see quarter one and quarter two of 2022 statements and the annual 2021 statement. And that will provide a lot more information to people so that they can see an entire two-year cycle of their TSP. And how far back in history can people look at what they've been doing with TSP? And in the old website, could they go back forever? In the previous website, they could go back to, I believe, 2003. In the current website, you can go back to June 1st of 2022, because that's when we switched over. If you need statements or information prior to that, you can call the thrift line and we will mail you statements. No plans to load that old data up so that people can do that on a self-service basis? So the reason we didn't was we looked at the people who had accessed it, how frequently that data was used, and we determined that based on the usage versus the money and the security of having that live data available, we didn't transfer it over. But as I said, if people want it, they can call in and get that, the older statements. We are speaking with Kim Weaver. She is the Director of External Affairs at the Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board. And just getting back to the phone question for a moment, according to your results from the most recent month, there were 240,000 calls queued up, 230,946 answered. So you had just a very small number that were not answered. Is that pretty much within your metrics and hope for customer experience? I mean, it's not like the IRS, which doesn't answer any of them. Roughly 80% of the calls were being answered in less than 20 seconds, which is pretty darn good. What we're focusing on at this point is continuing that service level. And we also have 35% repeat callers, which means that they either didn't really get the answer they needed the first time around or that their issue hasn't been resolved. And so we're focusing on trying to reach out to those people and be proactive and sort of identify people who are calling back repeatedly and reaching out to them to find out what exactly the issue is and how it can be resolved. And what is the integration on the back end there? That is to say, if someone is calling in and you give your credentials to the rep on the phone, are they also using the same website and the same system to look up things and help answer questions? Yes. The representative has access to the participants' data. They don't have access, because it's not live, to like the previous historical data. So if I called and I said, I want my balance from 2018 in December, they don't have immediate access to that because it's not live data, but they do have information to, we dispersed your monthly payment on X date and it was this amount with this amount of tax withholding, for example. And for people that want to move funds around from one fund to the other, those types of activities, just general maintenance of your account, according to one's own judgment, that's all fully operational? Oh, yes, absolutely. And that has been since day one. And you can do that online. And you can sh- log into your TSP My account and you can move money as you desire. So if you feel confident, you can move it some percentage out of the G fund into one of the other hotter funds if you feel like it. Exactly. And we should also point out that besides online and calls, you get email and written correspondence. And 
the distinction between the two in the monthly report says that people still write letters to a TSP? Oh, absolutely. You've got to remember that a big chunk of our participants are postal employees. As a former postal employee myself, letters are still in our lexicon, as it were. And so we respond to whatever channel we get them in. If we get letters, we respond to those. We respond to emails. We answer phone calls. AVA is the bot that is there. That has been enhanced to be more useful to people. If you want to call in, some people like to call in to the thrift line and go through the system to get like their balance, for example. And you need a PIN number, much like you do with a bank or an insurance company. You can now change that PIN number through AVA. And so that will assist you if you choose to use the IVR system to get your account information. Just from looking at the statistics, it seems like you really got to get those SIRS people and some of the older folks to at least get to the email age because the one area where you really have a backlog of substantial numbers is written correspondence. Right now there are uh, 4,443 outstanding. There's only a couple of hundred emails outstanding. Yes, and that's exactly true. And it's, as we we both know, right, letters seem to take longer than emails. You can respond to an email relatively quickly. Letters just take a little longer, and we are working on that. And just, if you would, maybe before we uh, wrap up here, just characterize the board's feelings about Accenture, about the site. Are they optimistic now, and do they feel like they're out of the woods I think we're out of the woods, yes, but I don't think that we're done. And in fact, the board asked Accenture to come back again relatively soon. And I don't have timing for when relatively soon is, but the board's interest level is not abated. And obviously, we as FRTIB staff are continuing to work with Accenture to make changes to address problem areas, but it is stabilizing And we're able to address problems faster, which I think is really key to a more mature program. Kim Weaver is Director of External Affairs at the Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board. As always, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, why federal contractors are pouring over that new national cyber strategy. But first, U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services processing delays and paperwork result in a lawsuit. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Immigration and citizenship laws are complicated, but advocates are upset by how long it takes USCIS to process unlawful presence waivers. So much so, the American Immigration Council recently filed suit against the Biden administration. For details, we turn to the council's legal director of litigation, Kate Gettle. Ms. Gettle, good to have you with us. Nice to be with you, Tom. And you are talking about something known as a waiver for unlawful presence. So this would be something, for example, if a refugee came in a hurry and needed to get into the country, there's a process for ensuring that they can stay legally until a hearing or tell us the process here. Yeah. So this is mainly affecting people who have some period of unlawful status in the United States who then go and marry either a U.S. citizen or a legal permanent resident. 
because they have a period of unlawful status in the United States, they can't immediately adjust their status based on that marriage. They have to exit the country and they have to go to a consulate abroad to get that visa. The problem is that for people who have a period of unlawful status, particularly those who've been here for a year or more, there's going to be a bar that kicks in that's going to bar them from returning for three or in most cases, 10 years. So they can apply for a waiver of that bar. And in the olden days before 2013, they would have to do it from abroad as they were going through this consulate process leaving them separated from their family for some period of time. In 2013, a new rule was enacted by the Department of Homeland Security that allowed them to do that here in the United States. Those waivers are what we're suing over in this lawsuit. So there's a statutory basis for that ability to be able to apply for the waiver here in the United States. It's not simply rulemaking by the agency. It is rulemaking by the agency. So this would be a regulation as opposed to a statute I see. And I guess there's some dispute over that at all going on. I mean, that outside of your lawsuit. Yeah, there's there's really never been a dispute about this particular regulation. I'm sure, Tom, as you follow federal news, there's a dispute over a lot of regulations. But this one has been fairly uncontroversial. The reason it's pretty uncontroversial is it's really about family unity and keeping families together which has been one spot where uh, both sides of the aisle tend to agree when it comes to immigration. And frankly, this was just a common sense way to make the process more efficient and work better. And just a detailed question before we get to the matter at hand. If someone comes to the United States with the intention of marrying someone here, that's not really family unity, though, is it? Because they're not married yet. Yeah. So this is that is a different sort of category of people. And so that those individuals would not fall under this lawsuit. There's actually a totally separate part of the immigration law that does allow for visas for fiancés to come here and get married. All right. Well, we could go on for hours about the arcana of immigration law. (laughs) I wish I could, but the matter at hand is that you are suing USCIS, the Biden administration, the United States, over the length of time the waiver process takes. Is that the issue here? That's exactly right. And as I mentioned, this waiver started in 2013. From 2013 to 2018, everything was humming along beautifully, and people were getting these waivers decided within three to five months. Then that wait time started to go up. Um, At the end of the last year, we are now seeing wait times of three years. And so you have spouses of U.S. citizens and legal permanent residents waiting for three years without work authorization and without being able to move forward with legal status in order to complete that processing of their marriage-based visa. And what do you feel is, or what's your hunch about why the process is taking so long? A lack of adjudicators to look at the applications or what? Or the sheer volume of people? Well, the volume of people hasn't really changed over that period of time. So that we don't think is an issue. And unfortunately, the issue with these waivers is not in isolation. We're seeing delays across the board with applications and petitions with U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, the agency that decides petitions and applications for visa, for visa benefits. So the problem we think is that there needs to be better staffing, better resource allocation, 
And we're disappointed to see that Congress gave USCIS a lot of money last year for some of these precise issues of backlogs and slow processing. They were given almost $540 million last year and explicitly told that they need to speed up the processing times. We're speaking with Kate Gettle. She's legal director of litigation at the American Immigration Council. And what about the paperwork? How are these forms generated? Because paper sometimes takes a lot longer than online means. And USCIS seems to have been expanding its length and number of paper forms in recent years. That's right. And USCIS is moving towards some electronic filings, but by far they are still a paper-based agency, which is something that my organization and many immigrant advocates have been squawking about because we all know that this process can be a lot more efficient if applications are submitted electronically. But you're right that applications have been getting longer and there there needs to be a real effort to streamline applications, but I think more critically, get everything online, sure. like the rest of the world. Yeah, we've asked them about that, but the agency doesn't answer the emails or phone calls on that topic, at least so far. Let me ask you then, what specifically is the lawsuit seeking? So the lawsuit is seeking an order from a judge, uh, we filed this out in Seattle, to tell U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services to essentially hurry up and promptly adjudicate these waiver applications for our named plaintiffs and also for the entire class of people for whom they are subject to these delays. So if you look at our lawsuit, we named 248 people who are subject to these delays, but we also filed it as a class action. And of course, what that means is we're asking the judge to solve the problem for everyone who is impacted by this. Specifically, we said everyone who has a waiver pending for 12 months or more. Got it. And what has been the response so far that you're aware of from the government? And what's the status of the case at this point? Because sometimes it takes two, three years for a judge to make a decision on these things. Right. Well, we are going to have a hearing out in Seattle in March on that question of whether this can proceed as a class action. That's going to be our first chance to be in front of the judge and test out the government's arguments in response. And so right now we're still at the beginning of the lawsuit, but we do hope to be getting um, some preliminary rulings uh, promptly after that hearing in March. And what do you feel would be a reasonable turnaround? As you said, back in 2013, when this new rule was initiated, it was about three to five months. Is that what you'd like to see again? We would like to get back to those processing times. We're asking for six months. That, that, that seems like a reasonable period of time in which these applications should be decided. One other point about how quickly they should be decided is that these are not super long and complicated applications. You, you mentioned the, the lengthy applications that are often found with immigration forms. If you contrast this, say, to something like a naturalization application that is much longer and much more involved, which makes sense, you're trying to become a, a, a U.S. citizen, these are pretty short applications and can be decided relatively quickly. You know, this is sort of a good faith check to make sure that there is a marriage and it was approved by USCIS so that they can go abroad, get that visa, come back and get on with their lives. And once you become a permanent resident and say your desire is to become naturalized, then you don't have that pressure on you. I mean, if it takes another couple of months to get the naturalization papers in, it's not as big a deal if you are 
permanent resident status. That is exactly right. It, it, it really gives a sense of security for a lot of people and um, really changes the game in terms of day-to-day life. Um, we have one of our um, named plaintiffs, for example, who's living in Utah right now. And in Utah, they allow for driver's license for people who are undocumented, but many of the states around Utah do not. And so he is afraid to move anywhere else because he can't drive and he can't, you know, help his family. And so there, we see a lot of really sort of tangible day-to-day consequences of not having that legal permanent residency, as you said, not to mention it is then taking them that much longer to become a naturalized U.S. citizen. Kate Gettle is legal director of litigation at the American Immigration Council. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still ahead, why federal contractors are pouring over that new national cyber strategy. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Network. The Biden administration's national cyber strategy, which came out last week, puts a lot of responsibility on industry. It has a hefty rulemaking and legislative agenda to support that, here with early reaction from federal contractors. Professional Services Council President and CEO David Perteau. And what is the reaction? What do you see in this whole strategy, especially from a contractor standpoint, David? Well, Tom, thanks so much for having me on. And, you know, the strategy is focused really on the entire nation, not the government contracting community. But as always, it will have major impacts on government contractors and major implications down the road. So it seems, first of all, there's a really key dynamic here, which is beginning to shift the responsibility for cybersecurity to what the strategy calls the most capable and best position actors. And that seems to mean, you know, the IT community, the cloud providers, the internet providers, et cetera. You know, for you and me as private citizens, this might have meaning, but I'm not sure it's going to shift any burdens away from contractors. In fact, it may complicate those burdens a little further. Well, in some ways, you know, cybersecurity has been, to make an analogy, as if the airline industry required everyone to have their own parachute before you could get on the plane because anything could happen. But the safety responsibility is not on the passenger. And I think there was a lot of that in here, which, again, is more of a consumer issue maybe than an industrial issue. But that's spreading. I liken it more than the airline to, you know, we've all got houses along the road here, right? And the threat is on the road, but we keep focusing on getting better and better padlocks for the house. We need to actually make a more secure highway here on which those houses sit. But for contractors, there's actually a couple of key things that come into play here. First, you know, there's five pillars, and those five pillars fall into the categories of, you know, defending critical infrastructure and disrupting threats, promoting data privacy, increasing the federal involvement in cyber research and development, which has some very potential valuable implications, and more international partnerships. The biggest one, of course, is critical infrastructure. For that, you really have to go back to the 16 critical infrastructure sectors that have already been defined, and they're pretty broad, but almost all of them impact government contractors in one way or the other. Right. So does this change requirements for contractors? I mean, let's talk about CMMC program at the Defense Department. That's not called out in that strategy, but that seems to be the kind of thing that they're prescribing more broadly. Well, this is the real question. You know, is there overlap 
is there connectivity with other ongoing parts of the federal government that would impact contractors uh, with this strategy? One place that it does mention that connectivity is in the NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technologies Cybersecurity Framework, which is in the middle of being updated. They put out a draft a few months ago. They had a public workshop back in February. PSC, Stephanie Santa Castro was attending that. And so we're looking for what that framework puts out there. It's not finalized yet. We're still operating under the old one. But you mentioned the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification Program, CMMC. Uh, DOD already has an acquisition regulation issued. It's been suspended, put on hold. It's not taking effect yet. They're revising it. They've been revising it since 2021. It's now 2023. We haven't seen a revised rule yet. So you have questions of both how these things connect, and there's no indication of that connection in this strategy, and what the timetable is, Tom, because for two years, DOD has been working on this revised rule. We haven't seen it yet. Maybe we'll see it this summer. And maybe it'll be something we can comment on. We certainly look forward to that. Yeah, that's a good point because the CMMC program has been, what, five, six, seven years or something in gestation now with a reset from when the Biden administration came in. That's only one rule. And there are several, I didn't count them, proposed rules that could come from this strategy. This as the White House or the OIRA office Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, already has a big backlog of rulemaking. And this is a 10-year strategy. It probably needs all of that to get the legislation and rulemaking done. Well, it may. And, you know, the key of any strategy is its implementation, not its documentation. And one of the big questions we'll be looking at is there's an implementation guide that they say is coming out later this summer. That's going to be awfully late to affect anything that agencies spend money on in this fiscal year, fiscal year 23, because, you know, by midsummer, agencies are sweeping up their unobligated funds to use for other purposes. We'll have an administration budget for FY24. Will any of it reflect this strategy? Uh, The strategy didn't come out. I mean, the budget's due out in a couple of days. I doubt the strategy came out in time to affect anything in the budget. Maybe they knew it was coming, so they put it in there. That's one of the things we'll be looking for. We're speaking with David Berteau, president and CEO of the Professional Services Council. And I wanted to ask you about the 24 budget. It's a month late, but that is the new on time, just as the new fiscal year is three months or six months after the official fiscal year. And except for more, what are contractors looking for? Well, as you know, the release is usually now what they call the skinny budget. That doesn't mean it's skinny in terms of dollars. It just means it's skinny in terms of content. We may get 100 pages or so. We won't get all the detailed justification material. But we'll be looking for a few key signals there. You mentioned more. Well, it's a question of more, but there's really a question of more for what, right? So will it be a higher number? Will that number actually incorporate the funds necessary to compensate for inflation, You know, we had this problem a couple of years ago. Each year, the administration, and this is not unique to this administration, they try to downplay what they think inflation is going to be because it makes their numbers look better. But inflation is going to be what it's going to be. And it certainly looks pretty sticky right now, still at 6% or so per year. Will that be incorporated in there? Will their new priorities be folded into this sort of thing? And this includes some of the priorities, not only from that cybersecurity strategy, but overall modernization and updates. Does it have the focus on China that we need to have? Does it incorporate the guidance necessary for agencies to know what their priorities are across the board? Plus, of course, it's just the opening round of a long series of months and months of negotiations that tie back to the debt limit extension and whether there are going to be any spending cuts, et cetera. So we'll be looking for all of that. 
And tied to that could be shifts, continued shifts in small business strategy and requirements for contracting, because many officially small businesses that qualify for set-asides don't quite align with the DEI imperatives that seem to be covering everything these days. So are you expecting more shift there in the coming year? We are waiting. Over 100 executive orders have been signed out by this administration. President Biden's on a pace of eclipsing all previous records for executive orders. Many of them have a requirement to flow into contracts. A lot of those flowing into contracts, you mentioned the delays from the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, a lot of those have been held back even though we're in the third year of the administration now. We are expecting some kind of a clause requiring more reporting or more updates on diversity, inclusion, equity, and accessibility, as they now call it. Uh, But we haven't seen that yet, right? So it could well come into play. I think that the implementation of those through the FAR is one of the real questions. PSC, of course, constantly comments on these and points out the disconnects between what your supposed goals are and what your results are going to be. Not just impact on small businesses, but even on companies that don't want to do business with the government at all anymore, declining numbers across the board. Yeah, so uh, lots of uncertainty then, you might say, going deeper into fiscal 23 and really for fiscal 24. It's probably the number one challenge we have is that uncertainty. Not only what are we going to get in terms of funding and resources for FY24, what are the priorities going to be? Will there be spending cuts tied to the debt limit extension? When will we know what that is? All those uncertainties permeate our business. And one of the toughest things for any company is how to deal with uncertainty, especially with the federal government. And on top of that, of course, uncertainty tends to increase during election years. And by golly, 24 is already going to be one of those. You know, it it appears that we move the start date of election cycle earlier and earlier. I mean, Tom, we just finished an election a few months ago, right? And we're already high into the 2024 election cycle. What's that going to mean? Of course, it almost certainly is going to mean that we'll start the fiscal year with a continuing resolution. One of the concerns is, can we actually reach a full year appropriation at any point in this cycle? Or will we have continuing resolutions off and on? We call them multiple sequential short-term CRs, but ultimately it could end up being a full year continuing resolution or even longer. That's a level of uncertainty we haven't faced much in the past. Election year complicates it, obviously. David Berto is president and CEO of the Professional Services Council. As always, thanks so much for your input. My pleasure, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. The National Archives and Records Administration, NARA, has a new plan to eliminate a big backlog of military service records requests. Delays in processing the requests have prevented many veterans from getting federal benefits they earned. For the latest, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. All right, what's their plan for NARA? What are they going to do to get rid of this backlog? Well, the big thing here is they plan to eliminate the backlog of overdue requests by this December. NARA laid this out in a report issued uh, in late February. It projected a timeline for eliminating this big backlog as well as a strategy to avoid similar situations in the future. And, you know, this, these cases piled up during the pandemic when on-site staffing limits at the National Personnel Records Center in St. Louis, Missouri, prevented staff from going to the center and processing these requests where many veterans' papers, like separation papers, are actual paper. They're not digitized quite yet, or they weren't at the time. And so there's this big backlog of requests that led to month-long delays in getting access to VA health care benefits, employment, 
educational benefits, things like that. And so NARA was required to put together this plan under the latest NDAA, and now they're saying December is the date. And the status of the backlog, how big is it? What are we talking about in terms of scale, Justin? Well, as of the report, there are about 408,000 unanswered requests for military service records. That's a 33% reduction from the peak of 604,000 cases last March. So it's come down quite a bit. The backlog of overdue requests, that's those that haven't had a response in more than 20 days, sits at 338,000 cases. So a big chunk of that overall backlog is overdue still. Just amazing the fact that people are still running around aisles of files and grabbing paper records out of file cabinets and doing whatever they do with them. And the nominee to lead NARA, that had a Senate confirmation hearing the other day, and I guess that came up. Yeah, Colleen Shogun is the nominee to be uh, archivist of the United States, and she appeared before the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee last week, said the backlog is one of her top priorities. If I am confirmed, I promise to make my first trip as archivist of the United States to St. Louis to the National Personnel Records Center to see the operations on the ground, to figure out where we can find efficiencies, to make sure that we are using contractual authorities uh, to the highest extent, to make sure that work gets done in an expeditious fashion, and also to explore any other creative solutions where we might be able to move that deadline up. Although ambitious, December 2023, I think we could all agree we'd like to have that sooner if possible. Well, I guess Ms. Shogun will have to become a samurai for getting rid of this backlog. And what about avoiding a buildup of a backlog in the future? Yeah, to your aisles full of files point, it's all about digitizing these paper records. The The National Archives says it's already working with the Department of Veterans Affairs to digitize those records. The VA is actually using funding from the American Rescue Plan to pull that off. And so that's a big deal. The Archives is also spending $600,000 in 2023 to transfer and maintain those digitized records from the VA. They're using the cloud workspaces and things like that to actually get those records transferred between the agencies. And then NARA also got $9 million from the Technology Modernization Fund to modernize its own case management reporting system that it uses to process these records requests so that agency employees can actually telework a little easier and access this system. It doesn't sound like a heavy lift in the world of digitizing records. I mean, it's only 400, 500,000, and maybe there's a lot of sheets in each file. But, you know, banks and so many financial institutions, different industries have digitized paper in large volume and converted them to PDFs that can be recalled with a code. That's old style. There's nothing leading edge about that. So it seems like a contractor could walk in with commercial product and mop it up if they just had the the contract to let and the money to do it. Yeah, you would think. And I mean, it, it's kind of a classic case where, you know, you have two different agencies working on this. The VA holds the files. Uh, you know, of course, the Defense Department has some files. So you have a third agency in there and the NARA has a role to play. So a lot of it uh, just might come down to bureaucracy here. And by the way, in that hearing, the fire from 1973 did not come up where hundreds of thousands of Army records were lost. I once read that NARA has been spending 40 or 50 years painstakingly cross-referencing with the military to try and rebuild those lost forever records. That that didn't come up. That didn't come up, but you can certainly see where digitizing records uh, would avoid situations like that as well. Yeah, the great St. Louis fire that was just a disaster in terms of Army record-keeping. Generations lost there. And remote work. 
at the uh, National Archives. Yeah, so the the folks at the National uh, Personnel Records Center couldn't work remotely during the pandemic. Uh, they didn't have digitized records, and that's kind of why this backlog happened in the first case. They are now putting the funding in place to upgrade the technology infrastructure at the center and at NARA more broadly to have telework opportunities. They actually have it in place. The, the report I mentioned noted that NPRC staff responded to more than 4,000 requests working remotely recently during a weather emergency, uh, whereas prior to the pandemic, the center would have processed virtually no requests during that time. So it's already kind of paying off. Yeah, we'll have to delve into how they do that now technologically. If they do it by alphabetical or by year, then you've got, you know, it comes out of the file cabinet and it gosh darn better well go into the same slot it came out of or it'll never be found again. Whereas once something becomes a barcode, it doesn't matter what the filing order is. A robot can find the barcode and remember where it was filed. This is how libraries all work now. They don't alphabetize books. or They just remember the last place it got stuck back in the bowels and a robot does all that. Yeah. I mean, some of these processes are so complex that Humans became really, really good at it, and these longtime veterans at places like NARA became really, really good at it, and now you have to figure out a way to make computers really, really good at it. And by the way, was her hearing, Ms. Shogun's hearing, favorable? I mean, it looks like there weren't big opposers to her. She should get the nod eventually. Well, that's been a complicated story. She was actually nominated during the last session of Congress when there was a 50-50 split in the Senate and Republicans opposed her for some uh, tweets and past writings that had uh, cast, as they put it, uh, some partisan uh, bent on her on her uh, potential role as archivist. But now that Democrats have a slight majority and they have one more seat on that committee, they could put her through uh, as soon as this Thursday during a business meeting. I don't know. If you have any thought that you might remotely have a chance of being nominated by an administration to a Senate-confirmed post, why would you not close your Twitter account? Well, actually, we might be going too deep down the rabbit hole. She did close her Twitter account. Republicans wanted a copy of those tweets. Uh, She declined to put those forward because it's her personal Twitter account. But uh, that's where we are with the archivist role. (laughs) Interesting. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, the Thrift Savings Plan overseers have made progress on that website. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Up next, the top national headlines from CBS News and the Federal Newscast. I'm Tom Temin. 